John chapter 16, verse number 13. Jesus is talking here, and this is what he says. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. Everybody say the world. He says you will have tribulation. Notice what Jesus says. He says in me you'll have peace. But he contrasts that with the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. The word tribulation means difficulty, hard to bear, anguish. So listen to what Jesus says. He says, now, if you're in me, you're going to have peace. He says, but while you're living in this world, you're going to have difficulty, hard to bear, and anguish. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Um, During the last seven days, uh, Middle Tennessee has experienced the worst kind of heartbreak and trauma that can be experienced. Early Tuesday morning, in the darkness of night, while many slept peaceably in their homes, an EF4 rated tornado with sustained winds of 175 miles an hour descended quickly on those people's innocence. Like an enemy that takes no prisoner, the tornado swept through neighborhoods, business centers, destroying anything and everything it touched. And as the light broke early Tuesday morning, the reality of the horror was seen and exposed to the citizens of East Nashville, Mount Juliet, and Cookville, Tennessee. Hundreds, hundreds of buildings were damaged. Vehicles were twisted and thrown like aluminum cans. Trees and power lines were snapped in two. Rubble and waste scattered for miles. Reports came in from Kentucky that possessions and papers from Mount Juliet were found as far as Kentucky. Roads were impassable, power out, and accurate communication was erratic at best. Almost immediately, the calls for help and the cries of anguish began sounding from the storm-affected areas. And what we had watched multiple times on on TV, the fires of, of, of California, the floods in Houston, the earthquakes in South America, Uh, the tornadoes in Oklahoma and Kansas. What we had seen multiple times on television, the tsunami in Asia. These things that had happened to other people and to other countries and to other towns and to other cities suddenly had happened to our state, had come to our home and occurred to our family and our friends. My son who still lives in Cookville, was on the ground Tuesday morning within hours of daylight helping people. And when he called, I could tell from the quiver in his voice that he had just seen something he had never experienced in his life. He said, Dad, it's terrible. The houses are gone. The people are gone. It's as if a bomb has exploded and leveled everything. As the hours passed, the horror of what had happened in just a few moments began to be revealed to our community and our state. Homes and processions totally 
destroyed. Entire families vanished and eventually found dead. Hours passed, rescue efforts turned into recovery efforts. The local hospital in Cookville became a war zone and a church facility in which I had preached in on several occasions became a morgue for families to come and identify their loved ones. The unthinkable, the unexplainable, and the unexpected came to our home, our community, and now we, the friends, must pick up the pieces. We've got to mourn our losses, deal with our pain, and make sense of this tragedy. As Christians, how do we view tragedy? How do we reason through tornadoes? How do we get through calamities? How do we make sense of it all? What is the cause of it? Why did it happen? Why did it happen to those people? I thought God was a good God. I thought He protected His people. What in the world is going on and why did this take place? These are the type of questions you have and I have. And these are the type of questions our friends and family members have. And as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must have a good answer. Because people want to know. And it causes people to question their faith. And to be concerned about a God, serving a God and giving their life to a God who might hurt innocent people. Why in the world did it happen and how do we deal with this type of tragedy? Question number one, does God send tornadoes and hurricanes? Did this thing that descended and killed 22 people in Cookville, Tennessee, did this thing come from God? The insurance companies declare this horrific loss, they're already on the ground, and they declare this horrific loss as an act of God. Unfortunately, God gets blamed when nature experiences unheaval, but He doesn't get the credit the remaining 99% of the time the weather is beautiful. He got blamed for Tuesday morning, an act of God, but this morning when they woke up and there wasn't a cloud in the sky and it was absolutely beautiful, they didn't say, isn't this an act of God? Isn't it amazing how God gets blamed for a lot of things He's not responsible for? I've read comments already on social media from ill-informed Christians who are blaming God for this recent tornado. Saying things like this. Saying things like God needed that family in heaven. Let me ask you something. Let me think. He don't need another family in heaven. Think about Just think that through. Do you think heaven doesn't have enough already? They got every good... They got Abraham and his family. They got David and his family. They got my grandmother and most of her relatives. That's enough for everybody. <laughs> Think about that. We come up with these spiritual cliches to try to make ourselves feel better, but they make no sense and cause other people to question a God like that. Things like God needed that family in heaven. God's will is being done on earth through storms and destruction. Listen... God sent His Word to teach us. He doesn't have to send a storm to teach us. Here's one I've heard already. God is judging America for its sin. 
God is judging America. Now, although God is often viewed as the one causing these terrible catastrophes, let me say something very sternly and directly, and you write it down. God did not cause this one that happened. God did not send this tornado to destroy people's lives in Mount Juliet. God did not send this tornado to kill people in Cookville, Tennessee. God did not send it. He did not send it. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse number 56. Notice what it says. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. John chapter 10, verse 10, you know this one. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's very plain. Who steals, who kills and destroys? Satan. Who comes to give life? Jesus Christ. Okay? So understand, if people say, well, God's getting America. Well, God might be getting America one day, but he didn't use the tornado in Cookville to get America. Understand, at, at the same time, at the same time, because we've got to stay balanced, stay in the middle of the road, the Bible is perfectly clear. It's perfectly clear. There have been instances that God has intentionally used natural disasters to judge men for their sins and rebellion. God didn't send this one. But there have been times that God has used natural disasters to judge men for their sin and rebellion. Let me give it to you, some scriptures to prove. Don't believe me, just believe the Bible. Look with me, turn with me to Genesis. Turn over to Genesis. How many brought your Bibles? Uh, 17 of you. You don't go to Demas's and eat with your fingers, do you? You've got to have a tool. Bring your Bible to church. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 13. Notice what it says. Genesis 6, 6, 13. The earth also was corrupt before God. Now notice, the earth was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. It was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I, notice God says, I, God, will destroy them with the earth. Verse 4, chapter 7. Turn over to chapter 7, one chapter over. Verse 4. For after seven more days, I, God... I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I, God, will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So from this passage we see that God at times does use natural disasters to bring judgment upon the earth and upon the people on the earth. Why? Because they were violent. They were wicked. Everybody was. Here's another example. Who do you think brought the plagues upon Egypt? You read the story in the book of Exodus about uh, Moses telling Pharaoh to let the people go, and and Pharaoh refused to let them go. And the Bible says that God sent the plagues, natural disasters. Water turned into blood. Insects came by the millions and multiplied millions. Hell came from, 
from, from the skies. Plagues, multiple plagues came. Natural disasters came. Sent by God. Sent by God. Who do you think it was who caused the storm? To cause a storm on a sea when the sailors and the sailors threw Jonah overboard. Remember that one? The Bible says God sent a strong wind and caused the storm and the ship began to sink. Who did it? God did it. So there are times that God has used natural disasters to, because of man's wickedness and rebellion, to judge planet earth. Here's one that's real familiar, especially in the day in which we're living. Turn to Genesis chapter uh, 19. Genesis chapter 19, verse number 12. Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin cities of the plain. Then the men said to Lot, have you, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place, for we, these were angels talking here, we will destroy this place. We will destroy it, God said, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, And it came to pass when God destroyed. Now make no mistake about it, God did it. That's what it says. God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham, sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelled. So understand, let's get in the middle of the road. I want to teach you biblically truth, biblical truth. All natural disasters listed in the Bible in which God has a direct hand in are the result of man's willful disobedience and rebellions against God. All natural disasters listed in the Bible in which God has a direct hand in. A direct hand that can be attributed the responsibility of God are the result of man's willful disobedience and rebellion against God. At the same time, as Christians, we should be very careful not to take one isolated event, like a tornado, a flood, Katrina, a hurricane, a tsunami, a forest fire. We should not take one isolated event and attribute it to God's anger, we shouldn't do that. Take one isolated event and attribute it to God's anger on a nation or a group of people. We shouldn't do that. Is everybody still here? There, there, are, two, there are two important things. Now, I'm teaching you this because, I've, why did, Pastor, why did, why did God do this? Why did God let this happen? Why did that innocent baby up there get snatched out of their home and found 150 yards from their house dead in a creek? That baby didn't do anything to anybody. Why would God do that? You have these questions. I have these questions. Why did it happen? And that's the reason I, I, I want to give you understanding. And, and there's, two, there's two things you need to understand about if God's involved or he's not involved. If God sent something 
or he didn't send something. There's two important characteristics that you must always remember. And I'll show it to you from the Word of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Let me set, let me set the story up for you. There was a man in Genesis named Abraham. How many have ever heard of Abraham? He was blessed of God. The Bible says he was so blessed that he had so much stuff. His family grew so much. His herds, his cattle, and his possessions grew so much that his, the land couldn't handle it all. He was so blessed. And, and the Bible says that he had a nephew by the name of Lot. Lot had a family, and because he was hooked up with Abraham and kin to Abraham, Lot just got, I call, the slop-over blessing. You know, some people get blessed not because they're wonderful, but because they're hooked up with blessed people. Okay? You ever been in those church services where the Spirit of God was moving and the person next to you got blessed and you weren't even thinking about it, but all of a sudden it just slopped over on you and you got blessed too. So that's when I go to church services and somebody's getting blessed, I try to get up close to them so that I get a slopover blessing. All right? Some of you run from those people get blessed and you need to get over there close to them. You just need a slopover blessing. Well, Lot just got a slopover blessing. He got blessed because he's Abraham's nephew, and God says, I'm going to bless you above all the people of the earth. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a great blessing. And sure enough, it happened. And finally, Abraham came to Lot, and he said, we're getting too much stuff here. We're getting too much cattle, too much herds. We're getting too many possessions. Our families are getting too big. This land's not big enough for both of us. You decide which way to go, and I'll go the other way. You take the highway... You take the high road, I'll take the low road, and we'll we'll meet in heaven to bar. Something like that. And the Bible says that Lot looked on the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looked the other way, it was mountains. And he said, well, if I get my choice, I'm going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, okay, that's fine, I'll go, because I'm going to be blessed. It don't make any difference where I go. Now remember that. When you're blessed of God, it doesn't make any difference to the circumstances around you. God's going to bless you. So Abraham went to the mountains area and Lot went to the well-watered plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, the culture turned uh, carnal, very ungodly. We know the story of what happened there with the homosexuality and, and, and that culture. And God was, was grieved that it happened. God, it was an abomination to God that man had done that. And we pick it up. God sends two angels down to check it out. Now, God knew what was going on, but he wanted, he wanted to give it a last chance look of mercy. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 18. These two angels show up at Abraham's place. And we pick it up in verse 26. Then the man rose from there and looked toward Sodom, these two angels. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, notice this, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
in him. For I know him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Verse 20, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin, their sin, homosexuality is a sin. I know that's not popular, but I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to be biblical. Homosexuality is a sin, and I know some of you have children and, and relatives that are caught up in it. Can I tell you, uh, lying is a sin. Some of you have relatives caught up in that. Some of you, gossip is a sin. Some of you are caught up in that. There's a lot of sins. Okay, there is a lot of sins. Because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22. Then the men, the two angels, turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now there's two things you need to understand to determine whether God is sending judgment to cause such a tragedy. Number one, and don't ever forget this, God never brings judgment on a nation. He never brings judgment on a city. And He never brings judgment on a people without a warning and giving intercessors the opportunity to turn the situation around. Notice, God shows up, the angels show up, and God says, I can't do this until I give Abraham, who is an, op, who is an intercessor, he's interceding for his family, he's interceding for a community that he doesn't even live in. But he understands there are precious souls in that community. God never sends judgment until He gives intercessors, He sends warning, and He gives intercessors an opportunity to turn the situation around. Listen, if you are watching TV, or you hear a report on the radio, or you see something on social media that stirs you to pray, something dangerous, something bad, something sinful that stirs you to pray, you stop what you're doing and you pray right then. God is using you as an intercessor, warning you to try to turn that situation around. God never sends judgment without giving people an opportunity to repent. Why? Because he's not in the business of destroying people's lives. And then notice in the second thing, don't ever forget this, God never. Everybody says never. God never. Everybody say never. God never. Madison say never. Never. God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. Never, 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 never. God never destroys the righteous 
with the wicked. Listen to what it said. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23. Look at Genesis 18, 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Listen to what Abraham said. Are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham understood the nature of God. He understood the character of God. He says, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous there were in it? Verse 25, listen, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Listen, Abraham understood the character and nature of God. It's against God's nature. It's against his character. He cannot destroy righteous people who love him and have served him with wicked people. I don't care what those wicked people have done. Righteous people will not be destroyed with the wicked people by God. By God. So when people say to you, well, that was God's will, that was God." You just tell them that's not true. You don't, you don't understand the nature of God. Abraham, it's, he, says, he says, won't the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, what he's saying, there is a law in the land that righteous people do not get destroyed for the cause of wicked people. He says, that's a law, God. You put that law in the, in the earth. And he said, now, now you're not going to abide by it? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There was a youth pastor that went to sleep on Monday night in that city of Cookville, Tennessee. Him and his little girl went to sleep on Monday night. And hours later, in the innocence of their home, they were snatched out of that home and their bodies were found 300 yards from their house. Youth pastor. An innocent baby girl. And you think God did that? Do you will not the judge of all the earth do right? God had nothing to do with that. So if God didn't send that tornado, then where in the name of Sam Hill did it come from? If you look at the book of Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and everything he created, the Bible says, was good. God placed man and woman in the Garden of Eden, gave them dominion over everything that lived. Have you ever thought about it? Mankind, the animal kingdom, and nature were in perfect harmony. And then the serpent showed up, and he tempted the woman to disobey God and eat 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 a fruit that God said you cannot eat of. It was the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says you can eat of every tree in the garden. You just cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think God didn't want them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Have you ever thought about why didn't God... He he let them eat of everything in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God not want them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because God said you can eat of every tree, just don't eat of that one. And the angel said, did God really say that? I mean, Satan said, did God really say that? Have you ever thought, why didn't God didn't want them to eat of that? I'll tell you why he didn't want them to eat of it. 
Because the only thing mankind learned by eating of the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only thing mankind ever learned was the knowledge of evil. Mankind already knew the knowledge of good. He was living in it. You're living in the Garden of Eden. My good, it don't get gooder than that. That's as good as it gets. All you can eat, all everything wonderful, no sickness, no sin. The fish, you go out in the ocean, you go out in the sea with a, in a boat, in your John boat, you don't even put a, a hook in the line, they jump in the boat with you. Deers come up and lay down and say, eat me. I mean, them everything you need. You don't have to get out early in the morning, everything you need. The only thing that they learned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the understanding of evil, and God never wanted man to know what evil is all about. See, anything that God prohibits us from is for our good, not withholding good from us. He's to protecting us. And he said, don't eat of it, and man ate of it. And notice, notice the result of man and woman eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than any every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. The seed of woman talking about Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, will, your head is going to be bruised by Jesus. You will bruise Jesus' heel. Now, understand position here. There's a story here you got to see. Understand position. Notice where Jesus is. He's on top. Satan's underneath. Satan's underneath Jesus' feet. He's going to bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus is going to bruise his head. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. You never pray, you never deal, you never talk about Satan as your equal peer. He is underneath you. He is under your feet. Okay? There's going to be an enemy. Y'all are going to be enemies the rest, of, the rest of time because man disobeyed God. And then notice what happens in verse 7 and verse 16. To the woman, he said, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. I never will forget when Amanda went to the delivery room on our firstborn, Tyler. And uh, she'd been in pain all day, having labor pains. And they finally gave her an epidural and she was shouting the victory and... And uh, it got, came time to deliver the baby, and they came and got me. I was out back then. I, they just didn't let anybody go in, you know. And I, I was out in the waiting room, and the nurse came and got me. Come, Dad, come, come, come with us, come with us. So I went into the delivery room. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there. They had Amanda spread out there, and they had a big mirror at the end. And they said, stand up there at her head. And I'm standing up there, and doctors say, look here, look in the mirror, Dad. I said, I ain't looking, I ain't looking, I I'm not looking, I don't want to look at that, I don't want to see that, I want to, I'm not looking. Dad, look. I said, no, no, I never looked at my head. And I remember her face was right here, and I got my head right beside her face, and I remember her saying during the delivery, when I get to heaven, I'm going to bust Eve right in the mouth. 
Notice, because you sinned, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Just think, women, if, if Eve had not sinned, if she had not eaten the forbidden fruit, you'd be popping out babies left and right. You'd be at Target. Boom, there goes one. It, I mean, it, it would be no problem whatsoever. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice this. Cursed is the ground. The earth is under a curse. The earth is under a curse. Since that day, the earth has been under a curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered their perfect environment and things at that moment began to decay. The environment began to quake and shake with disturbance. Paul talked about it thousands of years later. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Romans 8, verse 19. For all creation, creation is waiting eagerly for the future day that when God will reveal who His children really are, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Even creation knows this curse came about because of man's sin. And it's been disturbed. The environment has been rotting. Everything has been disturbed since man sinned in the Garden of Eden. And many, most of the natural disasters are because of the fall of man which brought about the curse of earth and the environment. So as Christians, how should we respond to national disasters? How do we respond to what happened in Houston when the floods took place and families were displaced? How do we respond to Katrina's, Irma's, Hurricane Irma? How do we respond to what happened in Copeville this past week? As Christians, how do we respond to it? We know God didn't send it because righteous people were killed with the wicked. So how do we respond to this? The first thing we do is we mourn. The first and proper response for any Christian is clearly to mourn. We mourn because we empathize, empathize with those who are suffering a loss. We mourn because we remember our own pain. But most of all, we mourn because of the deep reality of sin. There's coming a day. We don't talk about it much. But other countries and other Christians do. There's coming a day when this earth in its vileness and its wickedness in its corruption and decay there's coming a day when it will no longer be our home. We're going to a city whose builder and maker is God. And where the sun never sets and Jesus Christ is the sun of and the light, 24 hours a day. We're going to a city where the death never separates and we never have to say goodbye. 
We're going to a place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more death. We don't talk about it much because we spend all of our time trying to live our best life down here. But down here is nothing compared to where we're going. We have a hope. We have a hope. And we mourn when people go through tragedy because it just reminds us that this place is not our home. And we're here for just a season, and it sometimes can be a, a terrible place to be. The Bible says in Romans twelve fifteen, Be happy with those who are happy, and weep with those who are weep, who weep. Ecclesiastes chapter one, 3 says, For everything there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. First thing that most of us do when tragedy happens is we get angry, we want to blame someone, get in the blame game, if the company would have done this, if they would have done this, if they'd have listened to that, if they'd have prepared that, that would have never happened. Understand that following tragedy, there is always plenty of time to cast blame and sort out responsibility. The first thing we as Christians do is we mourn with those who mourn. The second thing we do is we practice compassion. We as a church, a Christian, should practice compassion to those who have experienced tragedy, calamity, or difficulty. We practice compassion. You know the scripture. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in His presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand, the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed Me. I was thirsty and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, you invited Me into your home. I was naked and you clothed me, gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty or give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and gave you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you are doing it to me. It's the role of the church and Christians during a time of tragedy, calamity, and difficulty is to mourn with those who mourn and to practice compassion. Practice compassion. Give, serve, sacrifice for those who hurt. What's the third thing we do? How do Christians respond? We mourn, we practice compassion. The third thing, we prepare. We prepare. Every tragedy should serve as a conversation starter for our family. Every one of us should look at what happened just a few miles up the road and say, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to hide? What room are we going to get in? If they say tornadoes are come heading our way, where do we go to get safe? 
It should be a conversation starter. Don't wait to after it happens. Prepare now. This coronavirus, is it a hype? I don't know. If, what's it going to do? I don't know what it's going to do. I have no idea what it's going to do. The Lord hadn't showed me. But I know wisdom says I need to prepare. What if they quarantine our work? What if they quarantine our neighborhood? What, how are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? Are we going to have water to drink? See, you, you don't wait till it happens. You prepare. Now, you don't mean you go off the deep end. I remember Y2K, I had people sell their houses, and they went and lived in a cave in North Carolina. Stupidest thing I ever seen. Went and lived in the cave. Had to come back and buy their same house for more expensive than they sold it. But that doesn't mean you don't put some resources aside. You prepare. What does the Bible say? These things happen to them as examples for us. First Corinthians chapter 10. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of this age. The Bible says in the last days there's going to be disturbances in, in the cosmos, in the environment, in the atmosphere. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. That's what the Bible said. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 24. So we get prepared. We get prepared. So what is our response as Christians? We mourn. We practice compassion. We prepare ourselves. And finally, we live daily with the reality that life is brief. Natural disasters confirm the words of James. Where, in James chapter 4, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I'll close with this. In one of his most popular books, C.S. Lewis imagines a lead demon by the name of Screwtape telling his underlings that war can be dangerous to their demonic agenda because it causes humans to think about eternity. Goes on to say that if demons are not careful, they may see thousands turning to the enemy God during the tribulation. In fact, it just might cause thousands to divert their attention to values and causes that are higher. Thus, in wartime, men prepare for death in ways that they do not prepare when things are going smoothly. Then the demon continues. How much better for us if all humans, the demons are talking, how much better for us demons if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we've trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every kind of indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestions of a priest, lest it betray to the sick man his true condition. C.S. Lewis believed that contented worldliness is one of the demon's best weapons at times of peace. But when disasters come, the weapon is rendered 
worthless. C.S. Lewis writes, In wartime, not even a human can believe that he's going to live forever. This should serve as a wake-up call that life is so brief.